One of my favorite things about hosting this podcast is that every once in a while, a guest will put a book or series on my radar that I've never heard of before. They suggest these titles because they were significant in their own childhood, because they played a role in developing them from the kid they once were to the adult they are today. I was such a bookworm myself as a little girl that I always find it hard to believe that I've been literally clueless to a book that was available in my own school days. But that's exactly what happens in today's episode. In episode 24 of the SSR podcast, we're talking about Susan Cooper's The Dark is Rising, which is the second book in a fantasy series of the same name. Published in 1973, the book is all about Will, the youngest child in a big family who learns on the eve of his 11th birthday that his fate is much bigger than he ever could have imagined. If you're picking up on some Harry Potter vibes, you're not the only one. But rather than being invited to start school at Hogwarts, Will learns that he is the final member of an ancient order called the Old Ones. The group is responsible for defending the so-called light from the dark. Will's job is to collect six artifacts belonging to the Old Ones so that the dark can be vanquished forever. No pressure, right? Luckily, he has the guidance of Merriman, a new mentor who is also an Old One. Merriman helps Will to understand the history of the Old Ones, points him in the right direction along his journey, and protects him from the dark figures we know only as the Rider and the Walker. Don't be discouraged from listening to this episode if you haven't read The Dark is Rising, or if the plot I've just described feels like little more than a bunch of confusing fantasy details. What you're about to hear is a fascinating conversation about everything from spiritual energetic centers and childhood nostalgia to Star Wars and modern politics. It's proof that quote-unquote kitty books can kick off some seriously interesting discussion. My guest today is Erica Berger. Erica is an award-winning previously New York and now LA-based journalist, host, strategist, and investor. She's passionate about cities, community, the environment, spirit, and the intersection of storytelling and social good. Currently, she's the host of TBD, a podcast about success and uncertainty, and she's also working on a docu-series about plants and politics. Notably, after years as a book and article worm, she now writes, records, and watches more than she reads, which she has mixed feelings about. Follow Erica on Twitter at GoodBurger, and check out our show notes at www.ssrpodcast.com slash listen for a link to the TBD podcast if you need it. After a month of New Reads November, I'm excited to share this throwback book with you. Remember to follow and tag us on Instagram and Twitter at SSRPod, and to subscribe to and review SSR if you're loving it. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Erica. Welcome to SSR. Thanks, Allie. Happy to be here. You introduced me to The Dark is Rising, and I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit that I had never heard of this series. I can't believe it because in my research, I found out that it's kind of a big deal. Yeah, I know. I hadn't thought about it in a really long time. And I was thinking to myself when you told me about your show, what were the books that really kind of made a mark on my psyche when I was younger? And this was one of the top three, for sure, the series. And I think it was not just because of the content, but uh, that it was a female author. It is a female author. The book is written by Susan Cooper. And for a little bit of context for readers out there who might be like me and had never heard of this series, again, so embarrassed. 
Um, the Dark is Rising is a series of five novels. The book we read specifically for this conversation is the second book in the series, which is called The Dark is Rising, and it was published in 1973. As you said, a female author, Susan Cooper, a British author. And I'd love if you could share a little bit more about like why these books were so formative for you, what your memories of them are like, and if you've ever reread them or if this was the first time that you've given them a second look. What was really cool about this experience was that uh, I grew up in Chicago and my family now mostly lives in Southern California. I went to university in Southern California and a lot of people started moving there in the 80s and 90s and, and finally I culminated everything in 2005 in college and then my parents moved out. And um, I called my mom and said, hey, do you still have some of my books from when I was younger? Like we've moved seven times, I think, and uh, I wasn't sure if she had them anymore. And she said, yeah, of course, honey, they're like in a bin in our basement. And I popped by her house and it was the first book on the top of the pile of about 50 books. Wow. So that was very synchronous to me. It was yeah. the easiest book to find. And I hadn't thought about it in, in decades, truly. I believe, uh, and my mom will have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe I acquired the series when we were on a trip to the United Kingdom, to London, when I was younger. I'm guessing I would have been around 10 or 12. It doesn't feel like a book I would have read younger than that. But we used to go to England every summer because my grandparents had friends who had an apartment there and they would let us stay there. And so I think I came across it because I was in English bookstores fairly often. And um, the series won the Newbery Medal and, and the Newbery Honors. So it, it garnered attention in the United States. Um, but I'm pretty sure I bought the specific edition I was reading in the UK. Yeah, I mean, if I track when I would have been reading that, basically in, in middle school, um, I also would have been studying for my bat mitzvah at the same time. And, and there are spiritual undertones to this series, mm -hmm. not in not in the way that um, C.S. Lewis and the Narnia Chronicles are explicitly uh, Christian texts, but um, there are spiritual undertones in the Dark is Rising series. And so I can like imagine myself being a spiritually curious person studying something specific at the time, being in a different culture and finding books that kind of call on the spiritual history of said culture and said country and, and finding them to be quite intriguing. And being at the same age, because Will in this book is 11 and you, I assume, 12, 13, getting ready for your bat mitzvah. It's sort of this really interesting critical time where you and Will were both diving into this really new world of study and like discovering a new part of who you are. Exactly. I think it would be really interesting to experience a book like this in the country where it came from too, because as I said, it wasn't really on my radar, which is strange. I was a huge fantasy reader. I read all of the big fantasy series. And as I was researching, as you said, it did win the Newbery Honor, which is a huge deal in Kidlet, but it also has continued to be a big series among educators. In 2012, it ranked number 22 among all-time children's novels in a survey published by School Library Journal, which, yeah, I see your eyes widening. I was surprised. I don't know how this wasn't on my radar. I wonder if it's well-known among educators and English teachers. But again, I think it's really special that you were introduced to it 
in the UK where it came from, because I'm sure maybe it's a bit better known among bookworms there. Yeah, I mean, I would assume so. I think like the nice thing about spending time in the UK and and falling in love with this series was that I could actually travel to some of these places. Now, mind you, I didn't make it to like Stonehenge and Bath, some of the more historic and and well-known towns in the UK until I think I was in my study abroad program in my 20s. But just knowing the various regions of this country, it would be akin to being from Chicago and being aware of how special California is or how interesting New York would be to visit. You know, London is what gets a lot of the attention globally, but there are so many magical, pun intended, places throughout the United Kingdom that have historical spiritual significance. I'm sure to this day that series uh, really set the foundation for me to appreciate the country of the United Kingdom and not just London. We were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, and I'm wondering if you would be willing to share a little bit more with our listeners, because you happen to know a lot of interesting things about the region where this book takes place in the UK and about the significance, which we don't learn about specifically in the book, but I think informs maybe some of the things that we're going to talk about throughout the rest of this episode. So would you want to share a little bit more about kind of your special inside knowledge of this area? Sure. So I'm in a teacher training currently for a specific type of yoga and meditation called Kundalini. And in my training, I learned that one of my teachers has been leading these retreats and trips specifically to the region of Glastonbury and of Southern England, of Cornwall and Stonehenge. And um, basically these regions are seen to be energetic centers of the world. There are ostensibly seven or eight of these types of power centers. And what I mean by energetic center is that the electromagnetic field and the gravitational fields in these places are stronger or more noticeable or more measurable. And it's the reason why ancient populations of of spiritually curious people and groups of people gathered and built places like Stonehenge or Egypt. Um, the pyramids, the seven wonders of the world, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I like this kind of line of thought because it blends the scientific and the spiritual. This region is the region where um, the stories of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table come from, the stories of Merlin. For those of you out there who appreciate Monty Python, it's where they were, you know, running around for the Holy Grail and and joking about um, and riding fake horses. Now there's a big music festival, an arts festival in Glastonbury that's, that's quite famous in the UK. And a lot of people that go to that festival are also aware of the spiritual significance significance of the space. And what's beautiful about that part of the country as well is that there are all these kind of striking features, geographic features, cliffs, the ocean jutting up against the cliffs, beautiful hilly fields that go on for miles and miles and kilometers and kilometers as as English people would say. Yeah, you can feel the power and the history in the spaces over there. Obviously, the architecture is older too, so you've got all these beautiful stone buildings and these farms and such, but it's palpable. It's not woo-woo. It's 
it's different. And, and that's why you've seen people gather there for thousands of years to honor the solstices. Thank you for sharing that. I really had no idea. And it does give me a different kind of appreciation for not just this story, but other stories that I've read set in the UK. And now I kind of want to go back and research and find out if they're meant to be set in the Glastonbury area as well. Even without knowing that, though, I think one of my favorite things about this book is how atmospheric it was. Like you got this sense of this beautiful mystical place, even when Will didn't know that there were these forces at work between the light and the dark, I had this feeling that there was something kind of bigger going on around him. And before we actually started recording a few weeks ago, actually, you and I had to reschedule this interview inside baseball there for some listeners. And you had said to me, I actually think it's better that we're going to record later because it's a great like cozy up for the fall and the holidays kind of book. And I hadn't started it yet. So I didn't, I didn't know but you were so right and you got that kind of atmosphere and that kind of coziness and I really just wanted to like wrap myself in a blanket and imagine this beautiful little village that he lives in and picture all the people that lived there. It was beautifully done. I think Susan Cooper captured that really well. So let's talk a little bit about Will and how we meet Will. We meet Will as the youngest in this really big family. He has six siblings. We find out later that there was a seventh that passed away as a baby, but he's the youngest of six siblings. And so already we have a setup for this kid that's going to go from ordinary to extraordinary, right? Indeed. And I think that really lays the groundwork for so many great fantasy stories. I am not well-versed in the specifics of Arthurian legends or mythology or Norse mythology, but I know that so many of our favorite stories are born from those seeds. And so it's interesting to be able to look at the parallels in these stories. Again, not necessarily knowing all the origins myself, but being able to realize these all derive from the same sort of seed. I personally picked up on a lot of parallels from Harry Potter. I'm a big Harry Potter fan. And even the fact that it's the eve of Will's birthday, much like we meet Harry on the eve of his birthday. And they're both kind of teetering on the edge of this major destiny-changing news. That was a huge observation for me from the beginning. I immediately felt like I kind of knew the path that we were getting ready to go on because of because of Harry Potter and him going to Hogwarts. Totally. I didn't even think about that. But yeah, like Susan Cooper is kind of the original J.K. Rowling. Yeah. And I'm sure she read these texts, maybe even when she was growing up, because what is she in her 40s or 50s or so? And that would that would be completely aligned. Yeah, I love that you brought up the reference to Arthurian and and Norse legend. I think there's a a modern book that's done quite well and been recently turned into a TV show by Neil Gaiman, American Gods. And it has a lot of those same references. And if you dive deep into Western culture, much of our mythos comes from these regions because it's where people came from to come to the U.S. in the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s. And if you want to get really witchy about things, maybe even in the 900s when they think the Vikings actually first came to the U.S. So yeah, it it feels substantive. (laughs) Yeah, these stories have really deep roots. American Gods happens to be my husband's favorite book that he's read in probably the last 10 years. I'll admit that I haven't read it yet. But he cannot say enough good things about it, and he really liked the show, too. So for listeners out there who are looking for something else to maybe cozy up with around the holidays, it's a big, fat book, too. So that could really, you could really, like, dig your teeth into that over the next couple of weeks. And it's funny, too. It's really, I mean, it's really, Neil Gaiman is is fantastic. And again, another English author who moved to the U.S. and partnered with a famous American musician. And yeah, just a fantastic 
story. As you were getting back into The Dark is Rising, what were your first impressions of Will, of his family? Like, what did you think of that setup coming into it as an adult this time around? I think I noticed more about his place within his family, literally and figuratively. So where he was living in this attic, which siblings he connected with and which he didn't, how as the baby, as the seventh son, he was a bit of a loner. And I I couldn't quite sort out how he had become that way. And I was thinking about like, I'm the baby in my family and I am a bit of a loner, but it's directly correlated with age. The age gap between me and my step-siblings and older half-siblings is significant. Will's age gap is not that significant. And so I was trying to sort out where that came from and then thinking, well, this is the second book in the series. And so did I forget some stuff from the first book? But I think what struck me the most was his relationship with the brother that wasn't there, that was physically not there. I think his name is Stephen, mm-hmm. who was you know, deployed out in the Caribbean for some reason, shape or form. And... I think Cooper did a a beautiful job of kind of painting a picture in which Will feels connected to this person who's not there, feels connected to this person who has the largest age gap from him, is is the oldest, is the eldest. And that comes back around in in the plot towards the end in a beautiful way, too. I struggled a bit with the parental relationship. And and maybe again, this is because there's six kids and I don't know what that's like, but he felt distant from his parents in a way that confused me. And when the Merry Men character enters, when this this new kind of father figure enters, he becomes close to him fairly quickly out of necessity. But it made me question, you know, the role of his parents, air quote, versus his parents, i.e. the old ones, and how that fits. It almost seemed like Stephen had been more of a parent figure to him like he had this longing for Steven and you could just sense how much he looked up to him and how much that relationship meant to him and it was almost like Steven being deployed to the Caribbean and I don't know that we got a sense of exactly how long he'd been away but it was almost like he had to leave in order for Merriman to then come in and take on that role. I thought that the relationship with Steven was interesting because opposite to you I'm the oldest in my family Um, My sisters are significantly younger than me. My youngest sister is 10 years younger than I am. So I kind of looked at it from the other direction and thinking for so many years, I've been away while my sisters have been home and I was at college and now I'm in New York and just kind of doing the adult thing while my youngest sister is home finishing high school. And it kind of gave me pause to think like, oh, you know, I wonder, I wonder if my sisters have thought of me in this kind of a light while I've been gone and what it's felt like to them to sort of be the one left behind as the older sisters have gone off and taken on their own adventures. Fascinating. I love that. Yeah. And I think I always am fascinated by books about youngest children because I am at the very opposite end of the spectrum. And so I think Will's circumstances are fascinating. I think you're right about his parents. It almost felt like the scenes with his whole family were like sitcom-y. It was like the dad was jokey and the mom was in the kitchen taking care of the kids and doling out chores. It felt very much like like an 80s or 90s sitcom where like the whole family is just together and doing their stereotypical family things, if that makes sense. 
Totally. And now I'm thinking about like why nobody made this into a film in the eighties, you know, a la like the never ending story or the princess bride. Like it could have been so kitschy and perfect. Yeah. You can see the mom with like the big sweater on and like the long flowy skirt and the dad just kind of making lame dad jokes and Will, as the youngest, was kind of getting pushed around. And again, I picked up on those Harry Potter parallels because we have him living in an attic, much like Harry was living in the cupboard under the stairs. And while Harry's not technically the youngest in the family, he has been marginalized in the household where he's living. His cousin Dudley pushes him around. And Will is definitely, like, bullied a little bit by his older siblings. He does have Paul, who seems really sweet and kind of checks on him every once in a while. But he definitely misses Stephen very much. And I wish that we'd gotten more Stephen in this book. Do we get Stephen in some of the other books? It sounds like you've read the whole series. You know, I, I don't remember at all. It's been so long. It felt like I was reading this again for the first time. That's kind which, of magical, though. Absolutely. But it made me interested in, in like what was going on in my life that I didn't remember as much. I mean, obviously, I was studying for Hebrew school, and I was in school and all these other things. But what are the things that, that really left a mark on me and this indelible mark, maybe more on my subconscious than my conscious memory. And that if I revisited them again, would bring a new experience like this did. That's an interesting thing to think about. Are there things as you were reading through that you, that jumped out at you as things that you could recognize as the plot points or the characters that you had remembered? Or did you realize as you were going through maybe that you really didn't remember anything. Like as you were kind of sorting into those two categories of like what stood out versus what had blended into the background, what was that like? Sure. I mean, I think the major plot points were all kind of subtly remembered, but I did not remember much of the ending and the specifics around the mask and the boat. And it felt like I was reading it for the first time. And and maybe that was because, you know, I'd read five books in a row, right? With Harry Potter, I remember I remember when the first one came out, which ironically, I keep going back to my Judaism, but I bought the first Harry Potter book at my uh, temple at like a Sunday book fair right when it came out. And then I bought the second one in London the year it came out. And so I had like a year between each book. And I was also like probably three years older at the time. And so it was like more memorable. And then we saw these movies and then it became so in embedded in pop culture. But with these books, I think I must have just like blown through them within a year. And a lot of the plot points fell behind. That being said, like, I think while reading it, I had this kind of subtle, energetic sensation of familiarity with the text throughout the duration of it. And it was more about feelings about the characters than it was about plot points. And that's a different part of our brain, mm -hmm. right? The yep. place where we, we feel things, where we react and, and feel things versus like specifically remember plot points. It left more of an emotional and energetic kind of mark on my psyche than it did like in my memory specifically. So you kind of got the nostalgic factor more than necessarily being able to be like, oh, I know what's going to happen next. I remember this person just kind of gave you those warm, fuzzy feelings, which I've experienced with, I would say the vast majority of the books that I've reread for this podcast. It's not necessarily the details that I remember. It's just kind of remembering maybe where I was when I read a certain passage or like the things that I was smelling, weird details that you don't necessarily expect to be able to revisit, but that come back to you when you 
get to revisit a book and therein, my friends, lies the magic of reading, right? <laughs> Doesn't it make you think a little bit about our curriculum and and our literature curriculum growing up um, and, and how it's so focused on plot points and finding kind of devices within the text, but it, it doesn't really kind of, at least my experience in my literature and English classes, um, don't touch on the feelings that the book makes us feel or um, our psyche and, and the emotions and the energetics behind a text. Totally. I think especially with fantasy books, what I've been finding when we come back to fantasy books for the podcast is that it almost becomes stressful to try to figure out all the mechanics of these different worlds and to figure out like what's really going on with all the different characters. And as the kind of interviewer in this situation, the first few times I got stressed out wondering if I understood everything and if I was going to be able to ask the right questions of the guest and show that I knew what was going on. But I've learned over time that these fantasy books it doesn't have to be that complicated. These are really fairly simple concepts and feelings that we're diving into. And so I've tried to be a little bit less obsessive about the details of the world because it would take way more than an hour to break down the history and the meanings of every scene in this book. Like, it's just too much. The old ones, the history of the old ones, what's happening with the dark, what's happening with the walker and the rider, and each of the six signs that Will then has to find, and then how it all culminates in the end. We can touch on some of it, but to dive into the details of each part, it's just not going to happen, and that's not really what the book is about. And so I think you're right. Like, we spend so much time learning how to dissect a text, and we get quizzed on the exact plot points and you're expected to understand every scene. But as I continue to revisit these books, I can't help but laugh at the fact that like the details don't always matter. I mean, they do sometimes, but that's not what we need to focus on. Totally. Something that I thought was interesting as I was researching for this conversation is that we were definitely not the only people to be rereading or reading for the first time this book. I don't know if you knew about this, but last winter, a Cambridge professor and a poet organized this like mass rereading of the Dark is Rising series. And the idea was to start on December 20th, 2017, which is Midwinter Eve, which is meant to coincide with the beginning of the novel, the eve of Will's birthday. And it was scheduled to continue until Twelfth Night on January 5th and 6th. And every day, the organizers planned to share one question to guide the discussion. And the participants were encouraged to tweet their memories of reading it and to participate in that discussion. And even on the first day or two of this reread, more than a thousand people around the world said that they wanted to be part of the group. And the author who was writing about this story and, and explaining what was going on said that the hashtag was vibrant with content from readers of the novel, as well as those who were approaching it for the first time. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And, and the author of this uh, piece, which I'll link to in the show notes and comes from Electric Literature, goes on to talk about how The Dark is Rising is the book we need right now in terms of kind of galvanizing around the resistance and this idea of dark versus light and, and figuring out like clear definitions of evil. And it's a really interesting piece. And I just thought that this campaign that they put together was fascinating because I haven't read about anything like that happening before. I love that. I had no idea. But you know what's funny? So remember when I originally had wanted to read A Wrinkle in Time with yeah. you and somebody was already doing it? They're related. And the reason I thought of reading A Wrinkle in Time was because the Ava DuVernay film came out last year. And 
Madeline Langle's granddaughter runs her Twitter. Yes. And has been very active on Twitter over the, the last year or so. Um, I love her tweets. And- Listeners, if you don't follow the Madeline Langle account, it's really fascinating. So I'll plug that too. Totally. And and there are similar themes in these books, right? About the dark and the light. And the, A Wrinkle in Time is obviously way more sci-fi and oriented around space. But I don't think it's a coincidence that somebody else decided to reread and galvanize people to reread The Dark is Rising because it's the same kind of text that inspires people to think about the shadow and and the light. Now, I come at it from a, a different perspective. I don't think there can be light without darkness. And the universe began in darkness and and then there was a sound and an explosion and light. And I, reading this text, took issue with how the dark was so clearly evil Hmm. and that there wasn't a balance between the light and dark and an interplay, which I think is is far more realistic. And then I was thinking about sleeping and and algae and how humans and, and algae need the dark and need sleep to replenish, to exist in the light throughout the day. Yeah, I mean, I think it plays into our politics too. I think absolutely this is a text that can provide inspiration for understanding when to know what's right and what's wrong and and what to do about it. And it's a text that talks about the necessity of community, that you can't fight things alone. It's a text that talks about reverence and honor and faith, which I think are all powerful tools that we need these days, but I found it to be reductive and and polarizing too in the in the the dark versus light sense because at the end of the day, as my very conservative friend and I were texting about the California fires and the uh, Trump administration's response to the California fires, I live in Los Angeles and have friends who've lost their homes. What we ended up agreeing upon was the problem with the president's response and how divisive his response was. My conservative friend doesn't agree with how we manage forestry, and I don't know where I stand on it, to be honest, Um, but we both agreed that we didn't like the tenor of the response, that there was no grace, there was no conscientiousness in it. But what he closed with in our text message was so fascinating, and it goes back to the book, I promise. He said, that the road to hell is is paved with good intentions. Mm. And I think that so beautifully articulates that like oftentimes the dark or people operating from a dark place don't realize that they are operating from a dark place. It's not so binary. And so in the book, it's like, clearly we're on the dark side. In Star Wars, now I'm thinking about Star Wars. Star Wars is so great because again, it has that hero's journey mm. and Will is a bit on somewhat of a hero's journey here. Darth Vader and and other characters who are on the quote-unquote dark side didn't get there because they like stood up and said, we are going to be dark or that they had these tragic consequences or experiences. And, And maybe this is because this is a kid's book, right? Ostensibly. And I would love to go through those tweets and that article that you found um, and see if anybody has anything to say about this. But I found it to be really reductive. And so when we apply it to modern politics and social movements, it stands in a way, but I actually think it's not as helpful because we need texts that get into the nuance and that drive our empathy for 
other approaches and for understanding how somebody might have gotten to the belief system that they have. And because that's the only way we're going to actually draw connections and, and come back together. So you were craving a little more nuance to the story and to the history. And it's fascinating because this article says the opposite which I guess is why these conversations are so interesting. The quote that I pulled out is, amid this slimy osmosis, which is a great phrase, amid this slimy osmosis of good and evil, then Cooper's moral dualism of the light and the dark, so stable and impermeable, slices down hard. Reading the Dark is Rising series, especially the namesake novel, is somehow soothing, summoning up memories of time when unambiguously evil people didn't receive glowing profile stories. And so that's the opposite of your viewpoint. And I can see both sides. The author of this piece is sort of reveling in the fact that the lines of good and evil are very clear in this book. And it's just <laughs> I'm sorry, kind of, how easy. It's so easy. I mean, it's, it, I don't, you know, I, I don't know exactly where I come down on this, but I think both sides are interesting. And um, I, I always crave backstory from characters. So from a character perspective, I definitely see where you're coming from, where it would have been fascinating to find out how the people who were on the dark side got there and what their histories were. And we got a little piece of that with the walker. Hawken is his sort of like human name. And he was once sort of the adoptive son of Merriman, who is Will's mentor in the Order of the Old Ones. And Hawken kind of served Merriman for many years and helped him to protect all of the artifacts of the Old Ones Order. And ultimately he turns to the dark side because they tempt him over there. And we get a little bit of sort of his motivation there because he, he feels like his life is constantly being put at risk for something that has nothing to do with him because Merriman is using his life kind of as like the high stakes game for destroying some of these artifacts. And he's then made to carry these artifacts for years and years and he gets resentful of that. So he flips to the dark side and spoiler alert, in the end, the dark side betrays him and he's kind of... SOL at the end of the book. So I think we got a piece of that with him, sort of understanding how people can switch from one side to the other. But it would have been interesting to get that on like a larger scale and to figure out much how we learned how the old ones originated and how their story unfolded. It would have been interesting to get that from the other side. Totally. I think that was actually the most complex and thoughtful character in the book. And it added depth to Merriman, this notion that um, the old ones or the the people of the light don't have regrets or never did anything bad. You know, people are multidimensional. So I really, as tragic as that character was, I thought it was incredibly important to, to remind people that people who are good still sacrifice other people at the behest of the good. Yeah, and that moment when you made the connection in the book, like the way that Cooper had that revelation unfold, where all of a sudden you realized that this man who we'd only known as the Walker for the vast majority of the book was actually Hawken, who he'd met in another context as Merriman's adopted son. That moment when you figure out it's the same person, I was genuinely surprised. And I have to say, in YA and kids' books, it's rare that I get that kind of a surprise anymore, especially because I read them so often. Like, I figured out the patterns. I can kind of see things coming from a mile away. I had a genuine moment of, oh my gosh, she that that's him? It's the same guy? And I really appreciated that. It was really refreshing to have that moment of being taken aback. And this is the last Harry Potter parallel that I'm going to draw, I think. 
But for fans of Harry Potter, this is very much like Peter Pettigrew and Scabbers, the rat. We find out, I think, in book three that Ron's rat, who he's been carrying around for three years at Hogwarts, is actually Peter Pettigrew, who's like the inside spy. Um, And he's been turned into a rat after betraying Harry's dad and all of his friends. And I had a similar feeling about that revelation. It took me back to that moment of figuring out that Scabbers was Peter Pettigrew. So just another Harry Potter fun fact. So if you're a fan of Harry (laughs) Potter and you're looking for another series to get lost in, I'm telling you, The Dark is Rising has a lot of those attributes and a lot of those same like moments of surprise and an intrigue. I love that. I also think like looking at when Susan Cooper wrote the series in in the seventies, there are parallels to what's happening globally right now, right? Trying to come out of a war, a lot of social movements happening, a rise in spirituality again, a lot of research into uh, drugs, medicine, clean energy. There's there's a lot of parallels between the times. So that's a, another reason to explore the series. That's true. It's the right time to do it. You mentioned this briefly when we first started talking, and I want to circle back to it. Uh, Susan Cooper as a female author and how that manifests or doesn't in this book. Um, one of the reviews that I read yesterday as I was preparing for this interview was um, from a blogger who had recently revisited the series and she was talking about how she was sort of disappointed by the lack of feminist vigor in this book. And I have to say, I agree. There were a few exceptions, but I think that's worth talking about, especially since we opened the conversation chatting about how Susan Cooper is a female novelist. So what do you think about that? How does it feel to read this book with that context from a 2018 perspective? It was incredibly weak. Yeah. (laughs) Like laughable almost. Um, And I, I wish I knew the other texts in the series to be able to reference. I know there are some strong female characters, but this book in particular, it just, the mom and the sister Mary are are such kind of like Joker type characters, like very weak characters and portrayed as such or portrayed as having little control. I found that to be like kind of problematic, especially with regards to the comments about their eating Mm. Um, or how much care they needed from the men or et cetera, et cetera. And then with the old ones, um, the fragility of the the lead female old one, um, although she did defend them in the beginning and, and suffer the consequences, but her being portrayed as that bird a, a couple times. And then Mrs. Graythorn, right? It was, it was Graythorn. Yeah, Graythorn um, is the woman who sort of is at the head of this manor in the neighborhood who we find out later in the book is part of the old ones. And again, she's portrayed as this fragile, broken character, not um, emotionally, but uh, physically. Oh, and then the farmhand, the the woman farmhand who turns out to be part of the dark. Maggie. Yeah, it's real toxic femininity in this text, actually. Yeah, and to give context uh, on to, you know, you mentioned this all-powerful woman who defends Will and Merriman in the beginning. What's interesting about her is that she is officially, like, the most powerful old one, is what we learn. Like, she's the strongest of all of them, and she can defend against the dark more than anybody else, really anybody else combined. And I loved at first that she was a woman. I thought that was super cool of Susan Cooper to choose this woman that we only know as the lady, capital L. I thought that was very cool that she chose to make her the most popular person in the order. 
But the fact that in order for her to be the most powerful person in the order, she then sort of had to like take these physical breaks and disappear, you know, kind of die away for a couple of weeks, a couple of months at a time in order to recover from having those kinds of moments of defending people and and the old ones. I thought that was just so weird. It was like, if you're going to make her the most powerful member of the order, just go for it. Just make her all powerful. Make her be able to take over when these men can't handle it and then make her be able to come back even stronger. Right. There would have been nothing lost. Yeah. And that's what strikes me in, in reflecting now. There was no reason to make these characters, uh, these female characters, the way that they were, except to fit them in with the men, right? So Maggie, of course, had to have a crush on Will's brother. Yeah, Max, Why? who is Why? such a gross ladies' man. Like, that was also pretty disgusting, like how they kept talking about. Yeah, Maggie next door is Will's girlfriend, but he also has, like, these other ladies all over. And and so they're talking about Maggie as if they're together, but at the same time, he has no qualms about writing letters to all these other women at school and all over. So that was pretty gross. And he was talking about the other women that he was writing to in a really derogatory way. Right. And, you know, I again go back to the notion that this was written in 1973, and it was the women's live movement. And uh, I don't know where Susan Cooper sat with it, but now we We've had, you know, 40 plus years of kind of societal education around the language that we use, the tropes we use, the ways we portray men, women, relationships. And and so I think you and I can take a keen eye and and examine this um, in a different way than maybe people were expecting back then. I'm also curious as to uh, the gender of who edited these series. Right. That's a good question. I I think about that a lot because, as listeners know, so many of the books that we come back to are incredibly backwards in the way they talk about women, which, you know, these books are written decades and decades ago. So, like, by definition, they're going to be backwards in a lot of ways. But it's not just the author. There's an editor and there's expectations of a sales team and a marketing team and a publishing house that are all at play here. So it's easy for us to pawn it off on the author, and I'm sure authors have a lot to do with it. But it's not all the authors, and you have to wonder what kind of notes they're getting back from an editor. And people want to sell a book. You know, you you want to sell a book. You want your story to get out there. And no matter how you feel about it, you might have to make some concessions in terms of plot and kind of hope that people don't think that you sold out, I guess. Yeah. But yes, I, I mean, at the end of the day, very disappointing. Overall, not great from that perspective. One thing that I really liked kind of overall on this book. And and as we mentioned earlier, listeners, if you want to get into the nitty gritty of the journey, if you want to really understand the history of the old ones, which is the order that's protecting the light in this book, you're going to have to read it because it's really complex. It's a really interesting story. We're not going to get into those details today. There's much more interesting things for us to talk about. So I recommend picking it up. But one thing that I really liked overall was this idea that like Will kept making mistakes and coming back from them. Like the journey itself to me, didn't feel all that challenging. He had to get these six signs in order to bring them together and complete the circle of the old ones. And as far as I could tell, I mean, he had to he had to go through a few tricky situations to get them, but ultimately, like, each sign kind of just showed up. Like, he would get to the end of a hard conversation or a weird confrontation, and the sign that he needed would be there waiting for him, and he'd be able to pick it up. So it wasn't necessarily that he was vanquishing dragons or doing complicated obstacle courses in order to get these signs, but throughout the book, there are a few times where he just kind of, like, screwed things up. Like, he just messed up. 
And he's an 11 year old kid. And I really liked that. Like I liked that sort of the challenge in this book wasn't so much about being the best, strongest up front, but that he dropped the ball a couple of times and had to learn and kind of make up for it. I think kids could relate to that really well. Totally. I think adults can relate to that really well too. True. You just made me think about those reality shows where people are competing and doing these like physical contests. And, you know, if you don't make each single obstacle, then you're like out. And that is not how life is. Like oftentimes it's more like an economic trend line where it it trends up diagonally up and to the right. But when you look really close at it, it's this kind of wave with troughs and peaks and troughs and peaks and moments of failure and, and then learning and then winning and then failure and learning and winning and failure and learning and winning. And um, I think that Cooper did a really good job of portraying that experience, especially for like a an almost pubescent child. The notion that like an 11 year old would be able to accomplish some crazy set of tasks would be ridiculous. Right. Yeah. So rather she painted this picture of a child coming into his own. Right. And he was so resilient. That's what struck me, his resilience, um, how quickly he would do something wrong and then learn and, and then adjust accordingly. And I think like overall, the message was that the universe was in support of him whether it was the old ones, whether it was the the playing with time and space. This book did not abide by the, the quote-unquote rules that we abide by with time and space. But the universe was in support of, of this child, right? This old one who was a child. And, and so that like blend of uh, failure and faith I think was really an important through line. Yeah. And if you think about it in terms of, as you said, like these reality show style competitions where you can be knocked out at a certain level, he didn't really have a choice. His destiny was to be the sign seeker. His kind of role in the old ones was to complete the circle, which required him to somehow collect all six of these artifacts, bring them together at the end and keep the light safe from the dark. He didn't really have a choice. That was his role as part of this order. And so the fact that Cooper set it up that way allowed him to stumble and fall because it wasn't like he had an option to be like, well, I screwed that up again. I guess I'm not qualified or I'm not going to do this anymore because this was his fate. And as you said, the universe was rooting for him in that way. He kind of just had to figure it out. Totally. Which I think I mean, are we all doing that? Yeah. I mean, we all (laughs) theoretically have a fate somewhere. I mean, depending on your belief system, like we all have things that we're meant to do and getting from point A to point B isn't really optional. Like you just have to continue to stumble and fall and pick yourself back up. And this is just kind of a fantastical Arthurian way to look at it, right? Exactly. I want to talk a bit about the ending because you had referenced it. I will say the ending for me was a little bit confusing and convoluted. And I, I, if I'd had time, I probably would have reread it, but it confused me. There were a lot of things going on. Essentially, Will has collected all six of the signs and he brings them all together. His brother Stephen has sent him this mask from Jamaica that a mysterious man gave to him to give his brother for Christmas. And Will brings the six they, I think of them as coins. In my head, they look like little coins that all have this, this symbol of the old ones on them. He brings them all together at Merriman's instructions, and he comes to this, as you mentioned, kind of this like king on a boat, and he has to give them to, to the king as like a sacrifice. I think they call it the hunt. But in the end, he also has to offer up this mask as a sacrifice. Am I getting that right? Does that sound 
correct you. Maybe sacrifice isn't the right word, but he needs to have all of these items together in order to kind of complete the mission that he's been on. Okay, so this is where we dive into um, archetypal wisdom and spiritual totems. So there's a lot of symbology here. And okay. if you're not familiar with it, it's, it is confusing. Now, the mask is a totem in, in like, we call totems in, in North American, Native uh, American uh, historical context. That it's, a, it's an item that has power, mm-hmm. that's been given power, right, and that we honor. And so that mask was a totem imbued with power by the old ones that, that kind of activated um, on this one night a year, this hunter that kind of comes back into the ethers. And when given the mask, this hunter is able to summon these dogs, these spiritual warrior dog type things. And and then they're able to chase the dark ones and get rid of them and and banish them of sorts. Who knows what actually happens to them? But um, without the mask, he can't really be fully embodied. And the mask also matched the mast, M-A-S-T, of the ship. Mm which is a reference to kind of when these these totems, these historical totems or these cultures were like happening, right? So in the same way that we have the cross or the Star of David or the Hamsa, we have these symbols that are imbued with power. I would look at the mask and look at the mast of the ship and, and look at the hunter and look at the king kind of in the same way. They were coming from the same lineage mm. of, of spirit, of thinking, of, of maybe a specific society. I also wouldn't look at them as being necessarily within the same um, physical plane hmm. as as Will and his family. They were in a different etheric plane, right? Interesting, um, in, yeah. In the same way as the old ones would have those doors and then they'd be able to step into this place that was out of time. Mm. Um and again, to go back into the, a wrinkle in time, it, it's playing with this notion of time and, and space right. and and planes and dimensions um, that are, it's not so linear, it's not so um, uh, literal. Mm. Uh, There's these parallel, parallel lies, parallel universes going on, and you can play with them, as you said, it's not all quite so, it's not linear. Sure. And, and I think like Interstellar does a really good job. The film with Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway does a good job of kind of conceptualizing this notion that time could maybe be folded in upon itself mm-hmm. and, and that it's more of a circle and not a line. And I think all of this kind of plays into that level of thinking. Well, with all that information, I kind of want to go back now and reread because I I was getting a sense that there was more symbolism and the sense of like these multiple times and spaces. But I just I think I was a little overwhelmed by the action and I just kind of was having trouble sorting out what was going on. So I think I'm going to reread that with your (laughs) insight. That's really helpful. So stepping back, has rereading this book made you love The Dark is Rising all the more? Has it maybe not held up for you in some way? No, it's beautiful. It, I, I'm glad I read it when I read it when I was growing up. I can imagine based on some other things that were happening in my life, how it gave me a sense of support and inspired me to continue on my journey um, without getting into too many details. Am I going to go and read the other books right now? Like, No, right. Like that's not happening. I'm literally reading an adult nonfiction book about the history of dreaming and archetypal dreams which, hey, related. I, I think that 
reading these books definitely kind of um, built a foundation for my literary journey in in fiction and nonfiction and also as a writer. Yeah, if, if you haven't read the books or the series and you're curious to understand what types of texts were being written at this time in history and what texts might still hold up for today. Um, or if you have kids, then these would be fantastic books to revisit. You would recommend them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So stepping away from The Dark is Rising altogether, what books are you reading now? Have you read recently? Nonfiction, fiction, anything you think our listeners would find interesting that you would also recommend to them to add to their TBR list. This is a big travel time. People are going on vacations. People are spending time away from work, which is nice. What should they be reading? Totally. So I'm reading this book. I'm going to reach over to my nightstand to grab it. It's called Big Dreams. It's written by a professor and a researcher up at Berkeley about archetypal dreams and this concept of these big dreams, not just small dreams that we have every night, but big dreams and how they played into the development of religion. So that's fascinating to me. I just reread American Gods within the last year before the TV show launched, and I I can't say more good things about Neil Gaiman, to be honest. He's so great. And uh, there's another book called Food of the Gods by an author named Terrence McKenna. It was written in 1992, and it's all about plants and how they played into the development of religion and modern society. And it's just beautifully articulated. I think if you were the type of person that um, got caught up in Michael Pollan's latest book, How to Change Your Mind, all about psychedelics and brain science, Terrence McKenna's book is, is the precursor to that. And and so that's fascinating. And then there's a book, I need to look up the name of the author. It's called Labyrinths. And um, a dear friend of mine gave it to me like last year. He he lives in London and um, uh, the author is Jorge Luis Borges. And it's, it's a famous kind of book of small stories written by Borges. It was written in 1962. And Again, magical realism, fantasy, metafiction, surrealism. So now you're getting a sense of the the types of things I read. But uh, this friend is English and a neuroscientist. And uh, we were getting a coffee in New York and he had gone to the Strand bookshop and and picked up a used copy for me. Um, And it's at the bottom of my bed and I just pick it up and and read a different story every so often to kind of punctuate a lot of the nonfiction that I read. But I, as a journalist covering kind of wonky issue areas. Although, of course, you and I met because I had written stuff about love. Yes, that is our origin story. <laughs> yeah, but I, I really appreciate texts that blend this, the science side of uh, this world and the spiritual side of this world. And that goes back to the faith I was raised in growing up. It goes back to the yogic training I'm in currently. I would be remiss to not say it's related to where we are at in the world now, where we're having to find our foundation so we can kind of reconstruct a a more regenerative, sustainable world moving forward and um, to not pay attention to magic and um, to spirituality and to mythos and to archetypal wisdom that we've had for thousands of years, 5,000, 7,000 years, as long as humans have recorded our history would be uh, a, a tragedy, I believe. So yeah, that's what I'm reading. 
I love that. I think I have a lot to learn from books like that. I think our listeners have a lot to learn. I'll include links to all of those books as well as to The Dark is Rising in our show notes if anybody wants to check those out. Erica, thank you so much for being with us today. I am excited to share your insights with our community. I'm also excited to share your podcast with the community. A link to that will also be on the show notes. That's called the TBD podcast. So check that out if you want to hear more from Erica. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Sally. This was fun. Bye, Erica. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hello SSRpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.